Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the blatant pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Last week, we had a podcast discussion focused on data protection issues in the EU and specifically the proposed general data protection regulation and how that could impact both innovation and free speech uh, in Europe and elsewhere as well. Uh, For that discussion, we had the Director of Intermediary Liability from the Stanford Center for Internet and Society, Daphne Keller, join us. This week, we have Daphne back again to take a step back from the specifics of the EU stuff even further and just to look at this issue of intermediary liability as a whole and why it's so important while also looking at some of the key developments around the globe uh, recently on intermediary liability. Um, That term, intermediary liability, is actually one of, I believe, the most important concepts for enabling both free expression and innovation online, and yet it's often kind of difficult to explain why it's so important. Uh, To me, at the very core of it, the question of intermediary liability is just about making sure that if you're going to apply legal liability to a party in some sort of lawsuit, that it's the party that actually did the action that breaks the law. Uh, In fact, Probably a decade or so ago, I regularly argued that we shouldn't even need laws protecting intermediaries from liability because it should be basic common sense that you don't blame the telephone company if someone makes a bomb threat over the phone and you don't blame Ford if a bank robber uses a Ford car for his getaway. And yet, time and time again, especially on the internet, this concept has been fairly hard for people to grasp and lots and lots of lawsuits um, often target the intermediaries. Uh, And by intermediaries, we generally mean platforms and internet services that you use every day. Thus, questions like, should Twitter be held legally liable if someone posts defamatory information? Should Yelp be held legally liable if someone posts a fake negative review? Or, in a situation that's a little more near and dear to my life, (laughs) should TechDirt be held legally liable for comments that someone doesn't like? Thankfully, here in the U.S., we have a law known as CDA 230, or Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, that makes it clear that service providers have absolute immunity from liability in such situations. Uh, It also, rather importantly, says that if a service provider does decide to moderate or delete content, that that doesn't suddenly make it liable for the content that they don't moderate. This has protected many, many, many internet platforms from crazy lawsuits (laughs) from people angry about content online. Uh, And without it, it's almost certain that there would be many fewer internet platforms that that allow free expression on them because the liability would just be too great, as we discussed in fairly great detail last week. Unfortunately, uh, most of the rest of the world doesn't have a a Section 230 of their own. They do have some rules on, on... intermediary liability, but not as, 
I would say, robust as what we have in the U.S. And we've seen a few rulings recently that have, in fact, placed liability on service providers, potentially uh, forcing the deletion of what would normally be protected free expression in the U.S., and also creating massive potential liability for those platforms. So today, what we wanted to do was have a wider discussion about why protection for intermediary liability is so important, as well as discuss some of the recent attacks on that concept around the globe, including in part in the U.S. Uh, As mentioned, Daphne Keller is back again for this discussion, as are our usual co-hosts, Hirsch Reddy and Dennis Yang. So, Daphne, since you're the special guest, we'll start with you again. Let's discuss, uh, I think, some of the key cases that have been happening around the world that have raised some concerns, or at least in my mind. Uh, You can disagree with that premise, but... uh, I think I might. (laughs) Okay, go for it. (laughs) Let's go. Let's have some disagreement. Okay. You want me to just launch into a case? (laughs) Yeah, so let's let's, let's pick... I have something something to say on the the language of intermediary liability. Uh, we need a new term. Oh God! Thank you. you. That, I, I actually, I actually have this written down <laughs> in my notes. Here was that I, I was hoping that maybe, and I've had this discussion with a couple other people. Like intermediary liability is just a horrible, horrible term. No one can say it. Nobody can say it. I can't say it. I'm stumbling over it every time, and nobody understands what it means. And it just sounds boring. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And horrible. and it sounds like it's about protecting companies from legal trouble, which which it is, and, you know, that has benefits for innovation, but I think what's most important about it is it protects internet users from having their speech deleted for no good reason. Right. The the, the protection of of the users is the key part of it. And and so, yes, I've been, I was actually just, like, literally a week ago having this discussion with, with someone about how we need to do something, whether it's have a contest or something, to come up with a better term for it, because it's, it's a terrible, terrible term. And I, I, I wasn't sure whether or not to bring that up, because I know it's in your title, I your know. job title. <laughs> so, you know. If you think of a better, <laughs> if, if the contest yields a good enough word. We can convince Stanford Maybe. to change your title, <laughs> we'll change your business cards. <laughs> Interesting. Yes, yes. No, I agree. So um, maybe we can discuss that if anyone here has some ideas, but I think maybe we'll we'll uh, try and crowdsource some some better suggestions uh, with the wider Tector community. So if you have any ideas, um, but we may do some posts about this too, because it's, it's crazy. But anyways, yes. So intermediary <laughs> liability, terrible term, important concept. Yeah. Don't get fooled. Don't get bored. Hopefully, you're still listening. Don't to the don't kill the messenger. Is that is that kind of this thing um, or not really? Yeah, I mean, I guess conceptually that's part of it, um, but but not really. It's I don't not, think that that, it, that doesn't yeah. quite encompass everything, right? I mean, yeah. because it's you know messenger versus platform. I think is kind of different. Right, right, and 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 sort of just the widespread impact, right? Because here's the thing, in my the internet is this giant communications platform, right? Okay. Yeah. Adding risks of intermediary liability breaks that, right? So it, it, it fundamentally breaks this concept of, of how we communicate on the internet, potentially by inserting much more power to anyone who disagrees with any content and much more power to the intermediaries. Uh, protecting against giving immunity to intermediaries from liability actually protects end users from those intermediaries, from those platforms, because it it gives much less incentive for them to censor the end users from from the speech that they're they're saying or posting or whatever. Right, because it basically places, I guess, even more incentives to be 
it's, it's policing, or is that what the... Well, yeah, I mean, there's a... Well, yeah. I mean, it's usually not incentives to be policing because most good intermediary liability laws yeah. say you can't be compelled to monitor, but it, you know, creates incentives anytime uh, anybody see. complains to just take stuff just down. Just take it down. Yeah, so, so it yeah. sort of ena enables a real, you know, veto right but for anyone, basically, to... And, and this is, you know, like the concept that we talked about last week, where there are all these cases of, you know, uh, attempts to censor content through mm -hmm. these, you know, through different kind of like notice and takedown provisions, which is sort of a notice and takedown provision, you know, is connected to intermediary liability by saying, if you don't take, usually, if you don't take down this content, you yeah. have liability. If you want to be protected, you have to take down this content. So take away that protection altogether. And, you know, you know, either you leave that protection and it gives incentives to take it down, or, you know, companies will just start to try to take if, stuff down. If you don't have intermediary immunity, um, it's difficult to imagine a world that looks like ours. You, you just, you cannot, right. as a business, run a peer-to-peer -peer messaging platform without yeah. intermediary. Or, or have a comment you, you don't have Twitter, you don't have YouTube, you don't have, you have a bunch of professionals who are vetted, who communicate to the people who can be trusted and, and, not to say anything silly, and which you, is broadcast. Yeah, basically. and if you look at, like, I mean, if people, lots of people like to talk about things like, like, Chinese censorship uh, of the mm -hmm. internet and like with you know the great firewall of China and a lot of a lot of that great firewall actually works through putting liability on intermediaries which is that the Chinese government tells ISPs if certain kinds of content gets gets through right. we will hold you the company liable and so the ISPs then Overblock. They just turn everything. Like, all right, we'll turn everything off. Anything that is political I'm, or I'm turning this car around. We're going home. It's not just <laughs> political things, too. It's it's worth mentioning that in China, anything can be deemed as something worth censoring. So, for example, if a if there's an explosion in a, in a, in a fertilizer sure. plant or something like that, that can be deemed as something that a, that a company will just proactively and who censor knows? the pictures. This podcast, it, maybe. <laughs> or, well, for sure, this podcast. <laughs> now that we've mentioned. Uh, Although, China. I think there are interesting differences between liability imposed on an ISP and mm -hmm. liability imposed on other kinds of intermediaries that come up um, when you have two different countries at issue. So if you are Turkey and you want Twitter to stop showing some content, you could try to reach out and get jurisdiction over Twitter and force them to stop, or you can go to your local ISPs, who you clearly have jurisdiction over, and tell them, hey, block Twitter. And right. so the, the kinds of requests that ISPs get from their national governments are, are very different and often much broader than the kind that other intermedi intermediaries get or would honor. Yeah, that's actually a really good point, which is, I mean, and we've seen a lot of that where, um, you know, governments are blocking entire sites. Um, so the, but that's a, that's a little bit different. Um, okay, so, all right, so that's a sort of general <laughs> overview on, on, on the intermediary liability issue, and we're still trying to come up with a new name. Um, but so there have been a few cases recently where, where this has come up globally. So we can discuss a few. Um, you know, I think there's, you know, one big one in Canada, one big one in Europe, and one that I think you disagree with me on in terms of Australia. So can we talk about India and Argentina too? If you, we can go <laughs> wherever you would like. So, uh, okay, great. So maybe I'll start with a set of cases that all kind of get at this issue of whether intermediary liability laws are necessary because of the way they protect the speech rights of internet users. Okay. Um, 
this this was an argument brought to the European Court of Human Rights in the Delphi case, mm-hmm. which did not go well. It had a very bad <laughs> ruling. Um, fortunately, the the ruling didn't reject that logic. It it didn't say um, a consideration of fundamental rights is a reason we have to have intermediary liability, but it did say that a particular category of intermediaries, the kind that you run, Mike, um, yes. didn't, didn't have to get the protection, and in this case didn't get the protection. The, the facts of the case were um, an online newspaper in Estonia ran an article about a ferry company and an ice bridge that attracted a lot of really nasty user comments. And they took them down when they got noticed. They did some proactive monitoring. They did some word keyword-based blocking. Um, but that wasn't enough. They got sued. The Estonian Supreme Court said, no, you don't have any safe harbors under the, the European Intermediary Liability System, which is based on their e-commerce directive. Um, and this went up to the European Court of Human Rights, and they said, yeah, that's, that's an okay outcome. And the, sort of this, the silver lining is that their analysis was really focused on newspapers, and they expressly narrowed it to newspapers. And, and, and their argument was partly, sort of the argument underlying all of this was partly that the newspaper publisher should have recognized before publishing the article itself in the first place that it would attract a nasty Bunch yeah. of comments. If you write about controversial things, you should expect to be liable for what other people say. Right, which is horrifying to That's me personally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and you know would seem to encourage basically any publication anywhere in Estonia, at least, and possibly elsewhere in Europe, to um, be wary of any any sort of you know commenting system. Exactly. I mean, I. I, I I don't know how you can be a newspaper in uh, anywhere in the European Union if that's the settled law. Well, it's, that's it's, the settled not even, law. it's not even EU, with, with comments, EU, right? So, I mean, there's also a distinction between EU versus yeah. is it is, Europe. Is, is this just... <laughs> so th- there could be a different outcome in different European countries, mm-hmm. but what this court ruling means is there's no constraint based on like the equivalent of constitutional constraints and rights here. There's no constraint from that if countries right, want so, to go so out and make this illegal, could, they can. Right. A country could choose to... So in this case, they're saying based on Estonian law, which is legitimate under European laws, that that you could put in place a thing that says there's no intermediary liability protection for newspapers. In, in this situation, right, right, maybe right. all newspapers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, another nasty part of the analysis was um, they permitted anonymous comments. And so if you permit, permit anonymous comments, you must be assuming responsibility for what those people say. Right. So it's this great disincentive for people to permit anonymous com- speech online. Right. And and uh, some of us believe, you know, enabling anonymous speech is actually pretty important because there are some things yeah. that people don't necessarily want to or, or, or shouldn't need to have their name attached to. I know lots of people disagree with that, um, but, you know, you're wrong. <laughs> 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 well, that's... <laughs> Uh, I think another debate for another day. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'll make my pitch for why India and Argentina got this right. Okay, um, go for it. So interestingly, that in the past year or so, there's been um, one Supreme Court ruling from Argentina in a case called Belen, Rodri- <clears throat> Belen Rodriguez and another Supreme Court ruling from India in a case called Single. 
And in both cases, the courts did reason from users' free expression rights. They, they sort of started with the predicate that we need a system that protects them, and they arrived at some very strict intermediary liability rules. In, in the case of Argentina, there was no existing statute, so they were really kind of making it up out of whole cloth. And they said, in most cases, a, an intermediary shouldn't have to take content down unless the person complaining has a court order. Like there's mm -hmm. somebody, you know, democratic institution of government, the, the courts, the public, you know, public institutions should figure out what's illegal. Right. Um, the Argentina court left some exceptions for things they consider manifestly illegal. The Indian Supreme Court reached effectively the same conclusion in a review of their existing intermediary liability law. Um, and they didn't list any exceptions, although hmm. I imagine in practice right. that won't really play out. You know, if you if you want to remove something that's obviously pornographic that violates Indian law, are intermediaries going to hold up for court orders? Mm. Yeah, it's it's funny how yeah, yeah. In, India has a very strange uh, kind of um, extra legal kind of uh, censorship system that kind of happens effectively anyways. Um, around recent elections people that were opposed to the current ruling party. People would just get beat up for making political statements on Twitter or Facebook. And, and it's pretty, I mean, you would think that That's the courts effective. are- effective. Yeah, and so, <laughs> it, it, like a lot of times what happens in the courts is, is almost moot in the sense that you're probably not gonna make those statements anyways. In an area where you don't have other, you know, physical protection or you're in the majority anyway. So you, min minorities there, and I don't just mean religious minorities, but I. I mean, they're definitely included in this group, but minorities in any sort of form in India making controversial statements on social media, it's very dangerous. Whether you are an agnostic or atheist talking about something irrational or whether it is uh, commenting about a, a, a party that's in power in the state where you are or anything like that. So uh, I think it was really important that the Supreme Court made this decision because at least the official rules are this way. But effectively, um, whether or not that matters, yeah, whether that matters on the ground is, is left to be seen. Well, I mean, seen. I think yeah. it's still good to have the, no, the, of course the, the, the principles in place. Yeah, and that, that that risk of violence has a real impact on the way intermediaries look at things too, because if you're asked to take something down and it doesn't seem like it's necessarily illegal, and you're you know kind of want to leave it up, and then the police officer who's asking you to take it down says there is going to be a riot. Last time there was a riot about this, people died you have to take this down, that's a pretty different yeah. situation than intermediaries are used to. Sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah I wouldn't want to be in the <laughs> seat of the guy who has to make these decisions in India. I can't even imagine. Because for free speech reasons, you want to say certain things, and you know, but yeah, then I you, mean, don't want, you don't want blood on your hand either. Yeah, and there and are tough calls. And, and that's actually why I actually, I, I like the part of, of CDA 230 in the U.S., which says basically, like, it becomes the platform's choice, that they can take stuff down. There are certain platforms that say they never do, but I think most platforms actually do decide to moderate, and they try and figure out a, a path to doing it reasonably. Um, and I think that's a much better system where, you know, rather than than having some sort of threat of liability hanging over you, it allows you to have a more rational discussion about whether or not we want to leave this content up, whether or not we think it's appropriate to leave it up or to take it down, as opposed to whether or not we think it's appropriate or not, you know, we don't want to risk a $100 million <laughs> lawsuit or whatever. I'm still waiting for the sort of flip side lawsuit where someone from a protected category makes the claim that some content that they posted that was removed um, 
was a kind of discrimination. Oh, yeah. there's a lawsuit in yeah. France that's hard to talk about on the radio. Um, <laughs> there's, there's somebody suing Facebook for taking down some art that he put on Facebook. He says he has a right under French law to, mm -hmm. to force Facebook to let him post that. Wow. And there, there have been some other similar attempts, but they um, tend to be with very little legal basis, and they don't tend to go very far. There is a, there is a lawsuit going on right now, which we recently wrote about, um, about a guy who is suing... Oh, gosh, I'm trying to remember the exact details. Um, is suing... Someone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's that's detail. No, uh, suing, suing YouTube and Vivo for taking down his music video and claiming that they, they violated his rights. He's suing for $30 million. I mean, it's a oh, crazy, crazy lawsuit altogether. But, um, so there are people who do sue over those things, but they tend not to have much basis for that. Well, I, I think there's also maybe particularly in Europe an emerging public discussion about that, about sure. the, the voluntary removals. Um, a lot of people feel like, it, you know, if there's a large platform that's where most of the content is, then that platform's voluntary removal processes are very consequential, and so they want to see more transparency around it. Sure. You know, it's, it's, it's a big discussion, and it bleeds into the intermediary liability discussion in a way that I, I think doesn't always make sense, because usually when there's a law on the table, it's about liability, and you kind of need to just like deal with that. Right. Um, but it's, it's a very fraught issue, and I, I would expect to see cases coming out of it, scholarship coming out of it, journalism, et cetera. Yeah. All right. Let, let's, let's go over to Canada. Uh, and and the, there's an issue here in, in the case, and I'll have you describe the, the, the basic facts, but like the concern with the Canadian one, to me, it touches on some of these issues, but becomes really one of jurisdiction. And over, you know, can you ha if you have intermediary liability... Uh, if you rule against an inter intermediary in a certain country or a certain jurisdiction, how widely does that go? Yeah. So there, there are kind of two high-profile um, cases or instances about this going on right now. The Canadian case is called Equistec. Um, it's, it's basically a trade secret case. Um, and it went to court in BC against Google, saying Google had to take down results about the defendant. Um, Google did take down results about the defendant for its Canada search service, Google.ca, based on Canadian law. Right. Um, but the plaintiff wanted the court to order and got the court to order that Google had to comply with Canadian law everywhere in the world and right. make that content disappear from the everywhere. Japanese version and the U.S. version and, and everywhere else, which is... it's it's a hard question to wrangle with legally. The kind of tools of jurisdiction analysis that we have are not very well suited for it. Um, but from a policy perspective, it's really easy to see why that's a problem. It's maybe even easier to see for the um, the other example, which is CNIL, the French mm -hmm. data regulator, data protection regulator, saying um, when Google has to remove things for the right to be forgotten in Europe, things that are clearly legal to leave up in the U.S., Google has to remove them for the whole world. Yeah. And, and so that's a big concern because then, you know, do you basically allow the most, um, you know, censorous 
yeah, government to determine what what can be seen around the entire globe, right? So, if you know China or Iran or Saudi Arabia or something decides that certain content needs to be taken down globally, then what do you do? Right. So, well, I mean, hopefully you have intermediaries who aren't really subject to their jurisdiction. Right. Yes. <laughs> but not yes. necessarily. But, you know, I mean, but there are certainly concerns with, I mean, China especially, right? I mean, everyone, you know, every big company wants yeah. to operate in China these days. Yeah. Same, same with the EU, though. So what's the result with the French case, or is it still ongoing? TBD. Yeah, <laughs> that we don't quite yeah. know yet. Well, because basically, yeah, I mean, they said, you know, r- remove remove it globally. And Google said no. And France said yes. <laughs> and I think that's basically where it stands right now. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of people expect the showdown to end eventually with widespread geo-blocking, you know, with companies agreeing that they will use IP address targeting or some other form of geo-blocking to prevent certain content from reaching certain countries, which has these, you know, terrible implications for the internet, you know, cuts it into what people call splinter nets, um, right. reduces its value as a network, et cetera. And it doesn't really work. And it doesn't work. It's totally right. circumventable. Yeah. And, and I mean, yeah, because it's, it's very easy to transport yourself yeah. to another country um, yeah. through a variety of different services. but um, Not physically, though. I mean, you can yeah, sit sure, at sure. you just use a proxy. Yeah. yeah and, and, but, but, you know, I guess part of the issue is that right now, right, I mean, if you're in, say, France and you go to, to Google, it'll redirect you to google.fr, but you can easily change that and, and go where you want. And so that's that's the the concern of the regulators in France. Yeah. And and if you're looking at, you know, some place that everyone agrees as a quote unquote repressive regime, then you're happy that they can get outside of the censorship boundaries of, of you know, their version of the internet and go see yeah. what's legal in the rest of the world. Right. If you are France and, you know, you feel that your law is correct. <laughs> <laughs> then, right. And, and like, you can understand, like none of these, I, I don't think... You know, I don't think anyone who are, or who's coming up with these kinds of rules means ill, right? I mean, they, they mean well, and they're they're thinking about a very particular case um, where, to them, the appropriate and just solution is to have this information blocked. And so, and I, I recognize and I understand that feeling, but that doesn't take into account what that means for all sorts of other content and all sorts of other situations where, you know, maybe that's not an appropriate solution, and yet you've set a precedent where that's that's the, the remedy that's going to happen. Yeah, I, I think it's unfortunate that these decisions kind of inevit- inevitably are being made by courts, by first instance courts, sure. who in many cases, they're not really supposed to look at the policy questions. They're supposed to look at the letter of the law and the case in front of them, and it's not too surprising that they conclude, oh, yeah, I, you know, I can give this person a remedy globally. I, I can order global removal. I think if the same question started with um, this, you know, the State Department or a justice ministry or other parts of government that think more about the bigger picture, they might come to a different outcome. Sure. Yeah. I think that makes sense. All right. But, Just a quick question. So how are these uh, intermediary rules falling out in um, in the United Kingdom? I'm just curious because there they have a very unique kind of a system where, uh, where their parliament is also kind of like the Supreme Court also, right? They don't have a higher... Yeah. Uh, so, the, the, so, the, so the legislators actually have to tackle with some of these issues that we usually leave to 
so the Supreme the, Court. The UK has passed some content-specific laws in recent years. There's the, the terrorism stuff recently, and a, and a couple of years ago, there was a new um, defamation law. But they, they have to be consistent with the e-commerce directive. And so uh, as, as far as I know, none of them go so far as to depart from that framework. And the, the main way to depart from that framework is by saying to intermediaries, you must monitor. Um, and you can well imagine governments going to intermediaries and saying that even if the law doesn't allow them to, right? Mm -hmm. Like pressure from a government saying, you, I'm not saying this has happened, by the way, uh, you know, pressure saying, if you don't do X, we're going to pass a law forcing you to do X. Um, and, you know, what's a reasonable response on the part of an intermediary? There's a, there's a great article about this called Against Jawboning by a guy at the University of Arizona. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, all right. Do we, do we want to argue about the Australian case? Or is <laughs> I, it? I, I think we should. Okay. Yeah, go for let's it. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, so this is a recent one. This one just came up and it's, uh, um, I mean, I'll give, if you want me to give the, the, the sure. quick background, yeah. it, it's uh, a, a woman in Australia who um, argues that she was defamed on the site Ripoff Report, which is a U.S.-based site, which is famous for where you can go and file notices about a company that you think has ripped you off or that you don't like. Individuals, too, or just? Yes. Wow. You can You can put up almost anything. And Ripoff Report is also somewhat infamous or famous, depending on how you look at it, for never taking anything down. Um, they, they create CDA 230 law the way that Perfect 10 created DMCA law. Right. They, they just drive all this internet legal development. Right. <laughs> um, some of it good, some of it... They, so for a while, uh, Ripoff Report has basically won almost every lawsuit thanks to CDA 230 and created all sorts of great precedent. Mm -hmm. um, but... There are times where you look at it and you recognize, like, because they refuse to take anything down, people do post stuff on that site that is pretty clearly defamatory. Um, and that raises some potentially legitimate concerns. Um, and, and so in this case, uh, this woman claims that there was defamatory content posted about her on Ripoff Report. Less discussed is the fact that she actually effectively started this by posting on Ripoff Report herself about other people who are probably the people who then posted about her, but we'll leave that aside for now. So she tried to get that content taken down off of Ripoff Report, and of course that didn't work. And then so she sued Google, claiming that they needed to um, you know, stop connecting that search to her name because it was defamatory and that she claimed she was having trouble finding a job because like the top result on her name was that she was a psychic stalker, I believe is the phrase that's in the, the complaint. Psycho, um, psycho stalker or psychic? Uh, psychic. She stalked, she stalked psychics. Stalked psychics. Allegedly. Yeah. There's, there's a lot more. The case is a fascinating read in a lot of ways. Um, What's the name of the case? It's Duffy. Duffy. Uh, and if you mention her name online, she will find you and <laughs> yell at you, as I have discovered personally. Um, but we'll leave that aside also. Um, and so uh, if I understand, if I remember correctly, 
I'm trying to remember that now I'm blanking on the exact details, but like uh, Google did agree to some things, right? Yeah, she she sent a bunch of notice and takedown requests for specific URLs, and for a while Google did not take them down, and eventually it did they take did. them down. Uh, and then and then part of the other problem is that uh, the autocomplete when mm-hmm. you did a, a Google search on her name. I forget exactly what it was, but if you start typing her name, then it may have come up like psychic stalker or something as a as an autocomplete suggestion, and she found that to to be a problem. And so, what the court decided just recently was basically that Google was technically a publisher of the information because it included some of the defamatory content in the snippet that showed up with her name. I I think that's that was the issue, and then also some of the autocomplete stuff. And therefore, Google was was liable for the for the defamation because it. Or, well, that that's not necessarily true. That that part still goes back, I think, to a lower court. But so, but Google was considered a publisher of that information. That sounds right. I I think some of them are already held defamatory, and it's over, and other parts go back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There there's some specific stuff about it. Um, yeah. So so I think that case has been overblown. Okay. Because. Basically, most countries in the world have notice and takedown for defamation. Okay. It used to be ambiguous whether Australia did, but there was a pretty argument, good argument that it did already have notice and takedown for defamation. This case makes clear, yes, they do have it. Okay. And it's, you know, unfor- fortunately or unfortunately, there's no intermediary liability law on point. You can't look to something like the DMCA or CDA 230. And so they looked to the underlying the tort of Uh defamation and looked at the elements of defamation and the defenses and tried to fit Google into these boxes about being a publisher or a republisher. And, you know, that's how they got to the outcome. But the, the effective, you know, significance of it is just there's notice and takedown for defamation in Australia. Right. I mean, so my concern still is, is when you, when you declare an intermediary like that, a, publisher um that that I, I mean it creates all sorts of weird incentives and potentially dangerous incentives and so that's that's my big concern about it and i can uh, i mean and there are other things because this case is so sort of nutty and there's a whole bunch of other sort of details in it that, that make it crazy but i worry about cases where the platform is declared the publisher um even you know even if you were to have some sort of notice and takedown liability structure um, just declaring the third party who didn't, you know, get, had no review of the content, even if it's after, you know, after notice, I guess you could argue there is some review, but um, they didn't they didn't make the decision to publish that content. And I, I worry about that. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a scary word. I mean, mm-hmm. intermediaries typically are protected as long as they're being relatively neutral or passive. You know, they don't decide what content is up there. They don't endorse it. And so having a word like publisher applied to an intermediary sounds like a, a scary step away from that. But, I mean, the, <laughs> the court basically, you know, the court squeezed an intermediary into this defamation box by saying Google's a special weird kind of publisher that only has the obligations of a publisher once it gets notice. Mm-hmm. All right. Ho- hopefully it ends there. So, Google indexed the ripoff report article, right? Yes. Which yeah. itself was not written by ripoff report, but by some third parties. Right. So, so ripoff report themselves was an intermediary. Yeah, it's a yes. tertiary liability case. 
That's crazy. That, I guess. That, yeah. That Google, by reposting something that is... Uh, well, they didn't even Google. repost it. Google, but, by finding it and including yeah. the snippet, yes. Right. So, so there are concerns about how far down this chain you, you potentially go in terms of determining who has liability. Yeah. And there, there's sort of an interesting remaining question in Australia and the UK, and uh, there's some good answers to it in Canada, about whether um, for that publication element of defamation, merely providing a link counts. It right. might be that if what Google showed was just a link, no title, no snippet, no cash copy, the outcome could have been different, but That's the court true. didn't go into that. Yeah, that would be interesting. And of course, I mean, and this this case can still be appealed. I think um, I I believe it's a lower court. I, yeah, I don't understand who the Supreme Court of South Australia is. No, <laughs> no offense to any Australians listening. Yeah, I, I I believe my understanding from what I I heard from some Australian legal people was that it can still go up to a higher court within Australia. Um, and I, I, I guess the Supreme Court of Southern Australia, whatever it is, is I, I would assume that's the equivalent of like an appeals court in the U.S. federal appeals court. But who knows? <laughs> I'm sure some people do, the Australians. So if you're in Australia and you're a legal expert and you know that, feel free to let us know. Um, it's called the High Court of Australia. Yes, that's the that's the Supreme that's the one that it wasn't yet. Right, so it's not quite there yet. Okay, so um, now to round out this podcast, we've been discussing around the globe stuff, but I, I do want to come back and just talk a little bit about there have been some sort of attacks back here at home on CDA two hundred and thirty and the idea that maybe it should be changed or, or you know, because right now it does have this sort of rather complete immunity, um, and some people have problems with that. Uh, and so there have been discussions. I don't know how serious any of them are, but do you do you think that there is any likelihood of, of CDA 230 being revisited? Um, I, I, I think it could happen. I think the biggest um, thing that could make that happen is revenge porn. Right. Um, or maybe maybe now there's a something about terrorist content that that could that could make it have political legs. There was an effort by state attorneys general a couple of years ago to amend it um, to basically give give them more authority vis-a-vis the federal government, and that 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 right. went nowhere. Right. Um, yeah, it, because so because right now the only the only real sort of exemption from CDA two thirty is for federal crimes, right? So that that is and intellectual property, right? Federal intellectual property. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and just to clarify Maybe. down that, that rabbit hole <laughs> is, uh, right. So federal intellectual property is not covered by CDA 230 because copyright is covered by the DMCA notice and takedown provision. And that leaves a big loophole, which is trademark, which has no official intermediary liability protection, but the courts have more or less created some sort of arbitrary case law style protection for trademark issues. But a lot of people try to use the fact that there is no official law and that CDA 230 does not apply to trademark and the MCA doesn't apply to trademark to somehow try and find ridiculous trademark uh, reasons to go after intermediaries. But yeah. that's, that's I, a rabbit hole. I, I should clarify, <laughs> the idea that this is only federal IP is Ninth Circuit law. There, <laughs> there are other places that disagree. But l l let's go back to revenge porn, shall yes. we? B because I think it illustrates a, a problem, which is if there is content that 
everybody thinks should be illegal, or you know, right. sort of that that stirs all of this moral outrage, and yet the law does not require intermediaries to take it down. That creates a lot of pressure either for the law to change, yep. which seems like it should be the right outcome. It should be a public process and a government decision, or for the intermediary to say oh, I'll take that down. Like, I don't right. have to. The law doesn't make me, but now I'm going to bring my own value judgments to bear on this, and, and I think this should come down. Right. And, and, and so, right, specifically, obviously, if you're not somehow not familiar with the whole revenge porn thing, right, it's this idea that these sites where people are posting usually naked or pictures of people without their permission, however they, they were obtained, whether it was... You know, it's called revenge porn because the theory was that it would be used for, you know, like exes to post uh, nude photos of, of their exes as revenge. Um, but in, off, in other cases, that there have been cases of computers being hacked into and, and posting nude pictures or um, really horrible extortion schemes that, that try and force people to send nude photos and, and all sorts of other terrible stuff. And there's a I, I think non-consensual sexual imagery might be the term of our right. these days. That's, that's what lots of people are trying to call it. Revenge porn is what's caught on, so most people just refer to all of it as revenge porn, and it is an absolutely horrible situation that, that it exists. Um, but some people, and some people have focused on, on Section 230 as being the reason why revenge porn exists. And, and so there have been some efforts made to modify Section 230 specifically because of um, revenge porn. Now, it... Although, I, although, of course, once you open up that legislation, everybody else shows up and right. that's another exception. And so it's, it's a dangerous road to go down. And so, so, so right, so th that's the big concern, right? I mean, and I, and I think it's this distinction, which doesn't always get made, whereas, like, I, I think... Revenge porn is is horrible and dangerous and should be stopped. But I worry about using, you know, opening up Section Two Thirty as the path to do that. And and at the same time, I think it's worth noting that almost every U.S. based revenge porn site is no longer in business because there have been other laws and other ways to shut them down. Whether it's been um, the Federal Trade Commission has gone after some. Local prosecutors have gone after, I mean, one of them got arrested for extortion. Um, you know, one got arrested and is in jail because, uh, also because of extortion, because not only did he run a revenge porn site, but he also set up a fake lawyer site that you could contact and pay, and he would <laughs> pretend to represent you <laughs> with the revenge porn site to get your content down. Um, that's That part is not at all legal. <laughs> uh, and so basically there have been ways to take these down and, and also just, you know, public shame. Um, those, you know, some of the individuals who've run these sites pretty clearly have no sense of shame. <laughs> um, but most of them have been taken down, which, which is a strong argument for like, you know, we have processes and laws. I'm and really skeptical though that you can take them all down because I mean, these kinds of things just, they, they just metastasize. There are some bad people over. on the internet. Yes, yeah. there's <laughs> no way to shut it down. Unless there's there's no way. To, there's no way to shut down all of it, and I agree. But um, and I but I don't think Section two thirty, you know, opening up Section two thirty and and killing that gets rid of those sites either. They they just figure out another way to to operate or another place to operate, um, and then it's just a, a sort of whack a mole game, which we're kind of at today without having to mess with Section 230. And so I worry about messing with Section 230 with the belief that it will have this sort of 
you know, magic bullet to fix the revenge porn problem when, you know, the, I think the, the two issues should be separated. It's kind of irrelevant, actually, the, the hosted content stuff on the internet, as we know, from all the peer-to-peer -peer stuff. Like, yeah, well, that's going yeah. down a whole other... <laughs> no, but uh, that's what I'm saying. It's like, what is the point of for that particular issue? I yeah. Think, I think just, just bit torrents and there's dark And, and, net, and the Tor hidden sites that now yeah, have become a big, a big deal. So, yes, but, but, um, but it is something I think that we should be concerned about in the U.S. in terms of what happens to Section 230 and whether or not these things are used to, to kind of attack it. And again, like it's it's a tough, it's often a tough discussion discussion to have, even because nobody, I mean, no sane person, frankly, wants to come out on like in in any way supporting revenge porn. Like I certainly don't, right? But you know, when you argue against people who are who are arguing for this change because they believe it will stop revenge porn, it, you know, it, it's it's a it's a, an uncomfortable argument to be making to say like, well, it's going to impact lots of other things and we should be pretty concerned about that. And then it just gets pinned back on, hey, this guy is supporting revenge porn. I, I think it's, <laughs> it's pretty easy to make the argument against changing. Well, I'll put you out front and center. <laughs> you just say for any given piece of content, you go on the internet and then you just say, how many torrents are there of this versus static links? And, and you'll find like 100 more torrents and then you say, there you go. Your law wouldn't make any sure. difference in terms of access to this content. Yeah, but, so but if you're that, worried but, but, about access, yes. what you need to do is make it, I, I think most of this content gets on the internet in the first place because specific individuals that upload it that very first time are not aware of how much trouble they can get into. And if they can't get into trouble under current law, that's what should be criminalized. Like that, that idea. doing the initial yeah. uploading. And so, you know, for example, Section 230 doesn't do anything to prevent people from getting shot with a gun or getting murdered. You know what I mean? <laughs> so you don't have to put all the onus on the one law. You just you criminalize that behavior that started, that was the first step in the chain. And then people will lighten up on it. They won't do it, right? Well, look, <laughs> Section 230... Yeah, people don't break laws. <laughs> no, they do, but it'll be much less... Like, I'll give you an example, right? Section 230, what it, what it does or doesn't do has had no effect on child pornography on the Internet. There's very little child photography on the internet compared to revenge porn. And the reason is, is because we so strongly prosecute that and treat it so strictly, right, that you know, whether or not someone could start a website like these guys you're talking about, right, they just wouldn't even do that. It's strict liability for that kind of stuff. Well, although CDA 230 doesn't immunize intermediaries for child pornography be right. because of that criminal law yeah. exception, which, you know, people talk about that as another weird way of dealing with revenge porn. Just make revenge porn a federal crime, and, you know, then it's out from under CDA 230. Right. Of course, nobody wants to really to go <laughs> to Congress and say, please mm. create a new crime that we might commit, you know, as an intermediary by accident if somebody uploads No, 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 no. I, yeah, I don't mean that. Yeah, that would be terrible. Because <laughs> how would you I, know? I didn't mean you were saying that. Yeah. <laughs> how would you know the difference between regular porn and revenge porn? Right? And it, 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 it raises a whole host of questions. And, and I think that's part of the difficulty where it's like you have a, a bad situation, right? And, and the, the natural inclination is to say, well, let's do something about that bad situation. But the problem is that most of the sort of front and center possible solutions either won't work or will cause other problems or both. 
and so it, it, it raises a whole host of issues, um, which we're probably not going to solve <laughs> right now on this podcast, because I think we've already gone pretty far over on our time again, but again, because it's a really interesting discussion. And so, uh, Daphne, thank you very much once again for joining us, and we will have to have you back again, because obviously we couldn't finish all of our detailed conversations in either of these two weeks. Um, so uh, thank you very much for, for joining us. This was, this was a lot of fun, very yeah. interesting, and we'll, we'll have you back again uh, sometime soon. Thanks, you guys. It was great to see you again. Thank you, and thank you for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.